Pray with me, if you will. Father, thank you for this day again. I pray that in these few moments that we have to gather and feed on your word, that your spirit would be active as we look at the clear picture of you and your son portrayed in these words. I pray that it would change our lives. We depend on your grace. We depend on your revelation to us. And I pray that as we have been gathered by your providence, bringing us all to this place at this time, I ask that lives would be changed, relationships and marriages would be healed, and saved. And I pray that our hearts would forsake pride and that we would see you for who you are and respond in worship. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, please open them to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, and we will begin reading in verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Last week, we talked about verses 14 through 18, and we identified at least 12 blessings that the people of God receive through the work of Jesus. And what I tried to do is set the tone for that message in the previous week by saying that Jesus is the one who has overcome. Jesus is the one who has won the victory. Jesus is the one who has done the great thing for us. And what should astound us, what should shock us, what should leave us in awe is that we should gain anything from his reward. As the song says, why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. And so in that perspective where we are really shocked or stunned by the fact that we should gain it all from the Lord's victory, we went through all 12 blessings that I uh, identified in these verses. There are probably more that you could draw out than those 12, but that's about all we had time for last week. And I said that most of them, uh, or really all of them, could be turned into their own sermon. You could talk and preach and teach for a long time on all of them and many more blessings that are available to the people of God through the work of Christ. And that in particular, this one referenced here in verse 17, Jesus being a merciful and faithful high priest. The author of Hebrews will pick up again in chapter 4 and run through the rest of the book with it. So we will spend many weeks discussing what it means for Jesus to be our high priest because that's something that we don't really have today. Uh, his, uh, the author's Jewish audience probably would have understood and felt the need for that, and it applied directly to their situation. For us today, we don't have priests for the most part. And it's not something that you wake up saying, hmm, I hope my high priest is doing his job for me properly. You know, you may think about your job or your boss or 
the sports that your kids are involved with, but you don't think, hmm, I hope my priest is doing his job and that that box is checked for me. But we'll get to that. That's not what today is about. It's this little phrase, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In the flow of the logic of the author, propitiation is situated in a way to function as the pinnacle what leads to the conclusion of all of these benefits that we discussed last week, all the blessings that Jesus gives his people all lead to this point where he makes propitiation for the people. It should be said that many of your translations, and we'll get to this in a little bit, many of your translations probably phrase it as atonement. Make atonement for the sins of the people. We'll get to that and why I think it is overly justified to use the word propitiation here. But before we get into that, um, I just want to explain what my agenda is. We're going to spend all morning on, well, not until 12, literally, but all morning while we're here on this one word. And it is that important. It's important to say that propitiation isn't the only word the Bible uses to describe what's going on in the cross and what God accomplishes for us through the passion of his son. There are many other words. You have ransom, atonement, sacrifice, redemption, liberation, substitution, adoption, vindication, example, a purchase. It was a combat, conflict that took place. It's a revelation of God, a revelation about ourselves, a narrowing of the way. All of these phrases, these analogies that the Bible uses to describe what actually took place on the cross and the subsequent burial and resurrection of Jesus. So I'm not saying this is the only word we should use when we think about what happened. However, this word propitiation might just be the most important. And it's not the most important because it's any more true than the other words that we use to describe the cross. It's true, and it is equally true as all the other words, all the other analogies the Bible uses to describe it. However, it is more important, perhaps, than all the other ones because our culture and our time and the, the mind of this age is at war with this word and with its implications. It's most important for us today because this idea, the ideas contained in this word, are under attack and being rejected all across the theological spectrum. If there are parts of the Bible that bother you, that rub you the wrong way, those for you are the most important portions of the Bible. Because that's where God's truth runs counter to who you are. And that's where you need to pay the most attention. There's a huge difference that one word can make. Before we get into all the specifics, into the definition and why it's so important, I want to tell you what I hope to accomplish. What I hope happens as a result of us seeing this word clearly and understand 
understanding what God means by it. They say, do not overpromise and underdeliver. Always underpromise and overdeliver. And I might run the risk of doing that in what I'm about to say. But I truly believe that this word properly understood has the power to do all of these things. Many hopes hang on this word. Properly understood, this word will destroy your pride and make you more humble. Is that difficult, anyone? To destroy your pride and feel more humble? Properly understood, this word will give you the heart and willpower to repent of waylaying sins. Is that difficult, anyone? Understood properly, this word will enable you to forgive others and remove bitterness from your heart. Understood properly, this word helps you hold in your heart the seemingly contradictory nature of fearing God and loving Him. Understood properly, this word can save broken relationships, friendships, and marriages. Understood properly, this word will give you the proper motivation for all good works. Understood properly, this word will give you the necessary weapons to defeat depression and anxiety. Understood properly, this word will give you the clarity and the truth to overcome fear, shame, and guilt. So what does it mean? There's much to say here, and as a nerd of sorts, I don't want to bore you all with all the details that we could get into with this word, but I do think it is important that we let the Bible speak for itself and take it on its own terms. As I said before, many of your Bible translations render this atonement. And it's not that atonement is a bad word, that's a good word, but it's more appropriate to use the word atonement as the summary of all that God has done in the cross. In fact, that is the word used in theological circles. We say the atonement as the general term to describe everything that's happened. And really what you have in atonement is this idea of two parties coming to terms with one another. You could also call it reconciliation. It carries legal sense or legal feeling. The atonement. Not that your translations are bad. I don't want you to lose confidence in your translations, but this word here means something a little bit different. It doesn't have a legal flavor in the original languages. And all translation is interpretation. If we were each reading from the Greek New Testament or in the Hebrew Old Testament, we would all come with different preferences of what we, how we would render things and how we would speak it. All translation is interpretation. So what's really going on here in the original languages? And I hope to not spend too much time here because I don't want to bore you. The Greek verb is hilaskomai. The noun form is hilasmos or hilasterion in the Old Testament. This is a root word. So you can't break it down really any further than it already is. And it essentially means to propitiate. It's really helpful when the definition of word is contained in its 
or when the word itself is contained in its definition, means to appease or mollify. The same. It, it here's here's a way to think about it. Um, it means to take someone who has anger or wrath and to change them so that they have no longer that same wrath. And we have, it, it's a word that functions both as a noun and a verb. We have a few words like this in English. The word lock, for example, is both a verb and a noun. And this is important when you look at the Hebrew history of this word. It's used to refer to what we translate as the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. When I was a little kid, I used, when I would read those words and, and build a mercy seat on top of the Ark, I used to think that there was a little chair sitting in the middle of the cherubim, right? It's like the seat, and that's where mercy happens. But if you read carefully, there's nothing there. The wings stretch out towards the center of the Ark of the Covenant, and it's empty. But it's still called the mercy seat. It's because English struggles to translate this word that's originally a verb and it's been made a noun, like the word lock or judge or saw or hammer, verbs and nouns. So this word appease or propitiate is basically translated into a noun form and that place on the Ark of the Covenant is called the propitiation place. The spot where it happens, so to speak. Where we really get this um, in the Old Testament is from Leviticus. Many places in the Bible, and you know, I'm, I'm trying to keep the pace up with this so we don't get bogged down in the meaning of words, so we can really get to the theological idea going on here. So if you turn to Leviticus 16, if you remember the story, God tells the Israelites exactly what kind of incense they're supposed to burn in the temple, or rather the tabernacle. And the sons of Aaron decide, well, we're not going to make the recipe exactly like God said. We're going to use our own recipe. And God kills them instantly for offering what he calls strange fire on the altar of incense. And here's what God says. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come to me at any time to the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come to me in the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. And then skip down to verse 11. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself. There's that word again. For himself and for his house, and he shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. And he shall take the censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, and the two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil. 
and put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat and uh, on the east side, and in front of the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. He shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. So what's all this blood and sacrifice and killing when we're using this term mercy? why it's important to understand what words are actually being used here. This is the place of atonement, the spot where it happens. The cloud, the presence of God appeared as a cloud over the mercy seat, the lid on top of the Ark of the Covenant. There was no form. You saw no form. So the wings of the cherubim are pointing towards the middle. And in that void space, the presence of God was said to be. And that is where the priest would come in once a year and take a bull from the bull, blood from the bull and the goat and splatter it all over that spot making atonement or propitiation in the place of propitiation. So the important question is here, and these questions get more serious as we go. Who is being appeased? Looking at these Old Testament passages and letting Scripture interpret Scripture the only way we can answer this question is to say that God is the one being appeased. Whose wrath is being dealt with. The idea of a wrathful God is extremely offensive. Why does God need to be appeased, placated, or pacified? Why do we need propitiation to happen? This idea is essentially that God is being made propitious or that He is being made to have goodwill and good intentions towards us. That He previously was not propitious and now He is. I'm sorry, it's a big word, but it's the Bible, so I've got to use it. This is what's happening. Being taken from a situation where He has wrath and anger, and fury, and now he's being propitiated to where he doesn't have that anymore. Why does God's wrath need to be appeased? I thought God is love. God is love. But the most frequent word used to describe God, yes, even more than love, is the fact that God is holy. He's different. He's other. He's pure. Even the ground of his love is built on his holiness. But very simply, we're not dealing with a written code or a set of rules outside or third party that governs the universe. We're dealing with a person, with God himself. It's not an impersonal principle of right and wrong. We're not dealing with a deity who thinks or acts like us. We're dealing with the Almighty. 
the I Am, Yahweh, the Holy One, the beginning and the end, the one at whose name the very foundations of the earth shake. When I say those names, not because of any magical power in the actual syllables, but because of the truth they convey, we ought to have a deep, reverent fear. It's not your wife, your nation, your friends, your children that you have sinned against. It is against this one. This is how David says it in Psalm 51, against you and you alone have I sinned. God is always the most offended party in any instance of disobedience or sin. Sin is madness, insanity, because it is we, the creature, rising up out of the dust, as it were, from which we have been made, striking God in the face, defying Him, and essentially daring Him to act. The most insane thing that we think in that moment of our rebellion, defying Him to His face, is that we'll get away with it. That's how the psalmist says it. How can God know? Is there knowledge with the Most High? In response to sin, God says of Himself that He has fierce wrath. The word imagery in Hebrew is that His nostrils burn. My nostrils burn with fierce, consuming wrath towards sin. Even the author of Hebrews himself, chapter 10, Verses 30 through 31. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. In order to be forgiven, in order for reconciliation to happen, in order for the atonement to be possible, God's wrath has to be dealt with. Our problem is not primarily that we have ignorance or that we have fractured relationships or the enemy himself. Our problem is not primarily death, the curse or the sufferings of this life. Our problem, brothers and sisters, in the most ultimate sense, is a holy God. You and I have sinned. We've defied him to his face struck him with the backside of our hands and dared him to act. God saved us by himself, for himself, and from himself. Why is it so offensive? Why is this idea under attack? I hope it's obvious to you by now in everything that I've said why this idea is so offensive. This word, propitiation, has dropped out of vogue in the theological circles. We don't like saying it. We don't like talking about the wrath of God. 
I hope I don't work, have to work too hard to show you why it's so offensive. To our modern man-centered way of seeing God, our man-centered way of thinking about spiritual things, the idea of God, the most powerful being in existence, the most powerful being imaginable, having burning hot wrath against you is unexplainable, it's inexplicable, and it's abominable to that modern understanding. It's extremely uncomfortable to think about. We talk about the distinction between hating the sin and hating the sinner. That's why I chose to go to Psalm 11 and read it this morning. The Bible doesn't necessarily distinguish the two at all. In the person of Jesus, the fact that he was the one who had to die means for God they're inseparable. Your sin is not just a black mass out there that he can destroy on his own. It's always connected to a person. That's why he, in his body of flesh, had to take it on from us. The fearful and utterly offensive thing about the message of the gospel is that God does not have wrath against our sins in some general, impersonal sense. But His wrath is against you and against me, against all of us. This word, propitiation, brings us face to face with the man Jesus Christ hanging on the cursed cross in our place. For many people, the idea of God having wrath against us, against our sin, because of our sin, is so offensive that it's not enough for them to look at the bruised, pierced, scourged, crushed, broken, bloodied Savior and let that be enough for them. Their thought is, well, God shouldn't have wrath against me in the first place. So if we talk about a God who has wrath against sin, and then you introduce, but Jesus died to absorb that wrath, that isn't enough for them because they think it was unjust for God to feel that way towards sinners. And I can't make it be enough for you. Part of repentance, and I would even say the essence of repentance, is agreeing with God about your sin. For them, and maybe some of you in this room, you would say, the God I know would not have such wrath in the first place. This is a current debate. It's been going on since the earliest recorded debates in Christianity. And it has new and formidable opponents in the academic circles, especially for the last 50 years. Within many seminaries, this idea that God doesn't really have wrath. A recent example is the hymn, In Christ Alone. The second verse, In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. Presbyterian 
denomination USA decided that they would put together a new hymnal back in 2012. And they wrote the authors of this song and said, do you mind if we use your song, but we change this phrase to, instead of the wrath of God was satisfied, we change it to the love of God was magnified. And the author said, no. You can use our song, but you've got to leave that in there. And it's not that the love of God isn't magnified, but their point is that here is how the love of God is magnified and that his wrath was satisfied in God himself putting forward the sacrifice in our place that absorbs the wrath of God. That's how God's love is magnified. So if it's offensive to you, I'm sorry, these authors say, but but you've got to leave that in there. That's an essential part of the gospel. It's not all the gospel, but it's an essential part. And if you destroy that, if you say, we don't have to deal with God's wrath anymore, we're not going to talk about that, You don't have the gospel anymore. So why must we preserve this word, propitiation, the satisfaction of God's wrath, that he has wrath and anger and fury against sinners, and then he's made propitious, he's made to have good will, good intentions, his wrath is appeased towards us. Why do we have to preserve this word, and what do we lose if we replace it? something else. Here's a few questions to help you understand how important this is. If God's wrath does not need to be satisfied, then what in the world is Jesus doing on the cross? Why do we get the Son of God Himself dying such a brutal death? It was the will of God to crush him, or another translation, and it pleased the Lord to crush him. What in, why in the world would the only pure one, the only holy one, the greatest being in existence come and die such a death? That'd be just a divine overreaction. That would be divine child abuse. Have this, the critics of that, this idea have said for God to put forth such a sacrifice if God's wrath doesn't need to be appeased. If he's just our example in some sense of how to suffer and love people. It's a huge overreaction. But if we're dealing with the wrath of an eternal being, and if that same eternal being wants to welcome you into eternity where you can live at peace with Him forever, then there does need to be an infinitely valuable sacrifice in your place. If God's wrath does not need to be satisfied, then what in the world is hell? The opponents of this idea, the opponents of speaking about God's wrath are also the ones who are very often denying that hell is real. Or at least saying that in some sense we all eventually make it to paradise. You cannot maintain a biblical idea about hell and what the realities are for those who do not embrace the Son unless God has wrath. Why in the world would there be suffering forevermore if we're just dealing with, oh well, here's the consequences. I I don't have any ill will towards you. It's because God's wrath, as Jesus says, remains on them. 
If God's wrath does not need to be satisfied, then why could we just not have continued with bulls and goats? Why was that insufficient? I mean, in the passages I just read about in in Leviticus 16, when the priest coming before the mercy seat and splattering it with blood over and over once a year, couldn't we just have continued with that? Why did we need this whole thing with Jesus coming and dying in our place? Why wasn't, why wasn't that enough if we're not dealing with God's wrath? If he's just giving us this to remind us that consequences of sin is death and we need to live holy lives and it's really inconvenient to make sacrifices, then that could have just really continued until the kingdom comes. But the whole point of the sacrificial system, and this is one of the arguments of the author of Hebrews, is that in the very fact that it has to be done every year, we have to come again before the mercy seat, the place of atonement, and sprinkle it with blood. Sprinkle it with blood is that it's not working. A pure sacrifice has to be given, and wrath has to be dealt with. If God's wrath doesn't need to be satisfied then you have to cut out large sections of the Old and New Testament, especially in the sayings of Jesus. And I'll take you to a few of them. Luke 3. Luke 3, verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Jesus's ministry and his message is to help people prepare for the wrath to come. John chapter three, verse three. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born again when he is old? Skip down, I'm sorry, to verse uh, 12. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can I... How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Do you remember why the serpents were there in the first place? Judgment. He says later that if you do believe, you have eternal life. If you do not believe, the wrath of God remains on you. Look at the revelation to John chapter 6. Starting in verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the mountains and rocks, 
fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? In Revelation to John chapter 14. Beginning in verse nine, another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. And I don't want to be a hellfire and brimstone preacher. But this is the word of God. If you get rid of God's wrath or you treat it as so detestable that you don't even talk about it, you're not teaching the gospel. If God's wrath doesn't need to be satisfied, it shrinks and minimizes his holiness and our sin. If our sin is just merely a legal thing where we broke some law, we got to make reparations. We got to repay something. We got to do something to fix it. And then we're back in right standing. Pay our services to society, right? And then we're restored. Maybe it's on our record in some sense, but, you know, we've paid our dues. That's not how God treats righteousness and holiness. If God's wrath doesn't need to be satisfied, then who is that God in the Old Testament? I mean, are you, have you read it? I mean, have you, have you seen how furious God's response is to sin? If we, if we don't have a God now who has wrath against sin, and if that's not what Jesus was dealing with on the cross, then there really is some other being, some other deity that we talk to. That there, there, there is this argument that that's Jehovah, and now Yahweh has shown up and redeemed us, and Jesus is the representative. Because they can't get over the idea that that God has such wrath. Because when we get to Jesus, it's all mercy and love and truth and all this. But Jesus, his whole ministry is to help people prepare and find shelter from the coming wrath. And his death in our place was dealing with God's wrath against sin. If God's wrath doesn't need to be satisfied then the apostles got it all wrong. Look at Paul in Romans chapter 2. Several places in Romans you could go. Paul in Romans 2, verses 4 through 5. Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And also Peter, 2 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10.
Second Peter 2, 4 through 10, for God did not spare, so for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if you rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous, unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And then lastly, John in 1 John. 1 John 4, 16 through 18. So we have come to know and believe the love of God, the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. And most people stop quoting right there. By this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence on the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. If God's wrath does not need to be satisfied, putting all this together... And the gospel we believe is little more than a nice story with no power to change your life or anything else. Because it would be a lie. So, brothers and sisters, God has wrath against sinners. You and me. And that wrath is burning hot and totally justified, totally pure. It is the right response to our sin. That same God, the only God, put forth himself, his very son, as the plan for all time to satisfy his wrath. To make himself propitious, to have goodwill towards us, towards those who would believe in him. So friend, if you are not in Christ, the wrath of God remains on you. Flee to this rock of refuge because the day is coming. And it makes me uncomfortable to say that, but that even gives the perception that I'm more merciful than God. We don't need to apologize for what God has done to make fleeing the coming wrath possible. So did I accomplish my goal? We'll end the way we've begun. I've spent this whole time talking about this idea of propitiation and atonement and that God's wrath has to be dealt with. That he has to be satisfied, appeased in his wrath. So let's put it to the test. Does it destroy your pride? Make you more humble? The only one whose opinion of you matters you deserve nothing other than his wrath. If that can't humble you, I don't know what can. 
this brutal, violent murder of the Son of God used to satisfy His wrath towards you. That's what it took to make you acceptable in His sight. If that can't humble you, I don't know what can. This is why it's so offensive that this is what it took to forgive you. Does it give you a heart and willpower to repent of sin? How does it do this? Standing in awe of the one whom you've sinned against. This goes back to the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. The tax collector wouldn't even stand looking up towards heaven. He beat his chest and said, have mercy on me. Be merciful to me. Be propitious. It's the same word. Be propitious to me, a sinner. Assuage your wrath. Take it away from me. I don't deserve mercy, but please take your wrath away from me. That man went down to his house justified. When you understand what it took for God to, do, to forgive you and to get rid of his wrath towards you, that gives you the power and the will to reject sin in your life. It's not a little thing. Looking at the cross, we do see the love of God magnified in that He absorbed the wrath that was against you. So why would we resubmit ourselves to slavery to sin? This word, as I said, enables you to forgive others and remove bitterness from your heart. Do you remember the story of those who forgive their debts and those who don't? Jesus clearly says to Peter, if we do not forgive those who sin against us, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you. And the point is this, you don't have grounds to stand on. God is always the most offended party. So when you hold a grudge or you hold bitterness in your heart to someone else, you're essentially saying, I have more rights than God to have anger and wrath towards this person. And that does not honor the sacrifice of Jesus. Has he forgiven you? Then you are obligated by that forgiveness to forgive everyone else. Does it help you love God and fear God at the same time? Again, the only one whose opinion matters he is at the same time so holy and so pure that his response to your sin is inexhaustible and eternal wrath. Yet in the person of Jesus, God himself, his love triumphs and is able to take that eternal and inexhaustible wrath and absorb it into himself. That should result in a deep, reverent fear and a deep, reverent love for God. How does it save broken relationships, friendships, and marriages? When you realize and embrace that God's love for you is totally unmerited. We didn't earn His love. He didn't owe us His love. And so costly to Him in putting forth His Son to satisfy his wrath. It frees you to love others unconditionally, not looking at what you can get out of the relationship or looking at how little you've gotten out of the relationship up to this point. 
We should love as God loves us. Do you want God to forgive you and love you and treat you the way we interact in our relationships? Well, I'll forgive them, but I don't want to be around them. I'll forgive them. I'll, I'll try to love them in some metaphysical sense, but I don't want to spend time with them or, or treat them well or extend good intentions towards them. Is that how you want God to view you? I'll forgive them, but I don't want them to be with me. God welcomes you as he welcomes his own son through the sacrifice that he accomplished in your place. Gives us the proper motivation for good works. The wrath of God is coming. Are your neighbors ready? Are your children ready? Are the ends of the earth ready? There is only one name given under heaven and earth by which we must be saved. Only one safe haven. Only one rock of refuge, and that is the name of Jesus. This is the only place you can be safe from the outpouring of his wrath that has been prophesied and seen and foretold in the revelation to John. That day's coming. And how loving is God that he has provided such a rock of shelter. We get to be heralds of the good news. It's not going to end in just total destruction and decay. There will be a remnant saved by grace. And the joy and peace and love of God will reign over the entire earth. We get to invite people into that wedding banquet. All of life is meant to be that endeavor. Does it give you the necessary weapons to defeat depression and anxiety? This is how Paul says it. He has not destined us for wrath. So you've had a bad day. Maybe you've had a bad week. Maybe a bad month, a year. Maybe year to date has been terrible. Maybe you've just had a bad life. It's been rough your entire life. Never, nothing's ever really gone good for you. Oh, Christian, he has not destined you for wrath. This is as bad as it's going to get for you here. Your main problem, the wrath of God against your sin, has been dealt with regardless of how troublesome and filled with trials your life may be. What waits for you is a welcoming into the kingdom of God and not wrath. Even the enemy has been hamstrung and imprisoned to where all his rage against you is simply used for your good. God is for you because of Jesus. Does it give you the clarity and the truth to overcome fear, shame, and guilt? The only reason there would still be any reason to feel shame or fear of punishment or guilt is if God still had wrath towards you. But the fact that Jesus walked out of the tomb, that crazy 
insane, miraculous event that we will be celebrating here in a few weeks, that Jesus walked out of the grave after having been dead, means that towards you, brother and sister, there is no more wrath. The shame, the guilt, the fear has no grounds. In the cross, the wrath of God is truly satisfied. And even as the Lord disciplines us to make us more like Jesus, He has freed us from the shame and guilt and fear of punishment. So let's believe it. To get rid of God's wrath, the joy that's available to you, the benefits of believing this way about God, they're just not there. And let's flee to the rock of refuge and find great hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this difficult truth. And I pray that in my limited and inadequate way of trying to explain it and show the magnitude of your holiness in contrast with us, with our sin, because of our sin, trying to exalt the death of Christ as the wrath-absorbing sacrifice that our hearts would be warmed towards you. The only one who has a right to have any ill will towards us is the very one whose love triumphed over that wrath and made a way for us to be saved. And I pray for those in this room who have not fled their sins and clinged to the rock of refuge who is Jesus. I pray that today would be the day of salvation and that we would live our lives trying to help others prepare for that day. Help us change our minds so that we rejoice in the fact that you're a holy God. We love you and fear you at the same time because of Jesus. I pray these things in his name for his sake.